Well, once again, some of you might be with us for the first time this morning, and I just want to make uh, you aware that we are uh, in the second part of a series entitled Some Special Exhortations for Some Special People. And I will review briefly what we went over last Sunday so that all of us are caught up. As I mentioned, that when the rulers uh, in the synagogue back in the day of Christ and the Apostle Paul, and he was there when the rulers read from the law and the prophets, they stood up and they said, hey, is there anyone here who has a word of exhortation? Men and brethren, then say on. You can find this in uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 15. And what happened at that moment, Paul stood up and began to minister to them the word of God about Christ himself. An exhortation is something that is a, a solace. It is a comfort. It is a consolation. And it exhorts us toward the person and his work in our lives. And so we're going to proceed through uh, the passage, which ranges all the way from uh, verse 9 through verse 25, seeking to answer six questions that the passage unearths. Last week, we dealt with... uh, a few of those questions, we answered the question, who are we? And we answered it very succinctly there in verse 9 when Peter says that you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. And that's what I wanted us to take home last week, if anything, uh, Solid is that you, as a believer in Christ, are special to God. You are his own special people. We dealt with the other question that what has happened to make us his special people? And we saw in uh, the verses there in verse 9, verse 11, and verse 25, verse 9, verse 10, rather, what has happened to us is that we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, and we have obtained mercy. I took the privilege of handing each one of you in your bulletin today an outline that you're welcome to take home and used for further study. But what a privilege that because we are his own special people, what has happened to us is he called each one of us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he caused each one of us to obtain mercy. We're told in the scriptures that his mercies are new every morning. And if yesterday my life was uh, not a life that necessarily brought glory to that resurrected Savior living his life out in me, aren't you and I glad this morning 
that every morning those mercies are new. We began last week also with the third question that the passage uh, does answer in that, well, what are we to do as God's special people that have been brought out of darkness into his light, that have obtained mercies, what are we to do as God's special people? We addressed a couple of those in verse 9. I'll draw your uh, attention to it. First of all, we are to proclaim the praises of him. We are to be a people that literally are ready at a given moment to proclaim Praise to God. Now, you know, uh, oftentimes in, in church language, Christian ease, they call it sometimes, is that you'll be talking with another believer and they'll tell you about something that is good going on in your life and their life rather. And, you know, you'll hear them say, well, praise the Lord. And that's, that's not because we necessarily Uh, have our own language that we want to speak, but it's because there's a truth in us that we are to be a people that are ready to praise him. That's what this morning's uh, service is all about, gathering together to lift up our praises to God, whether that's on a Sunday morning, a Sunday night, any day during the week, at every moment and every hour. We are to proclaim the praises of him who called us. Last week also we began with the second of ten items underneath what are we to do as special people. Uh, It's there in verse 11, the later portion of it. It says that we are to, notice, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. And we spent... Uh, quite a few minutes last week on what that means to us as Christians, what the Bible teaches about abstaining from fleshly lust, that in our modern era today, whenever you hear the word, or a lot of people may hear the word uh, lust or fleshly lust, immediately uh, there is the inclination to think of sexual sin. And true, the Bible is referring to to abstain from sexual sin. Uh, Adultery, of course. Fornication, of course. But we went through a list in Galatians chapter 5 that was quite eye-opening to us last week. And if you're taking note, you can go there later today and read it. Because... The original language here where it says to abstain from fleshly lust also included things like selfish ambition, jealousy, contentions, outbursts of wrath, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, as Paul said to the Galatians, of which I tell you, as I've told you in time past, that those who practice continually, habitually involved in those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he went on to say, but the fruit of the Spirit. And that's what Peter is underscoring here as we get into these 10 uh, things that we are to do as God's special people. It is the working out of the Spirit of God 
in us, working out that life that is alive in us. As we move down this list of 10 items under what we're to do, we, of course, come now to the third one, which is there in verse 12. We read it this morning. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. The third thing that we are to do as God's special people, having been called out of darkness into light, having obtained mercies, is that we are to have our conduct honorable. Now, what does that mean? The King James Version of the Bible translates conduct into manner of life or your manner of living. And it is true that at the inception of the church age, 2,000 years ago, that Christians were falsely accused of great crimes. And this is why Peter's writing this letter to them about how their conduct, their manner of living is to be. Because Christians back then were accused, pagans would say that the communion that Christians took, that they ate and drank the blood of babies in cannibalistic ways. They accused them that their agape feasts were nothing but wild orgies. They accused them that their antisocial attitude was because they didn't want to participate in the immoral entertainment. And they went on to say that Christians are atheists. They, they don't believe God because they would not worship idols. And one commentator goes on to say, but over time it became clear that Christians weren't immoral. It was shown by their lives. Now fast forward to today's society and what's happening in general media today. You know, we are entering an age where the Christian is beginning to be even more ostracized from society. You are no longer tolerated. You are called intolerant because you are not tolerant of the immorality and uh, perverse thinking that an unsaved world brings across our table. Not much has changed. Paul reminds us in Romans 8 verse 5, he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. You are to have your conduct honorable. You are to abstain from fleshly lusts. We are to proclaim His praises. The fourth item that we are to do as His own special people is there in verse 13, if I could draw your attention to it. It says, Therefore... Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, and that's the end of verse 13. It'll go on in just a minute about governors, but as God's special people, we are given a biblical mandate to be submissive to the highest authority, the laws of the land. 
Now, what I find interesting is that this particular verse was one of the driving forces for us as evangelical Christian churches when the outbreak of COVID hit, COVID-19, and here in this state we went through a tremendous amount of uh, pressure from the authorities in our land to shut the church down for health reasons. People gathering, the, the virus would just spread and people would get sick. And, and those things did happen for a variety of reasons. But if you recall, when it came down to whether or not we have the right to gather or not, yes, the law of the land, we, we exercise submission at first to the law of the land. But when we saw that that law was actually impeding a higher law that we have biblically, we chose, many of us in the state of California, there were over 1,500 pastors that signed a declaration of, of essentiality. In other words, we put that on the governor's desk and said, in so many words, you can tell us whatever you want to tell us, but we call ourselves essential to every society, and we opened our doors. Now, again, submissive to the authority above us, we operated on this verse at first, but when we felt like our biblical mandates that are higher than, than someone telling us we can't gather were impeding that, we went to some other verses, you know, Acts chapter 5, when Peter was told by the rulers, you know, we distinctly told you not to teach in the name of Jesus. Peter's response was, I got to obey God, not man. The mandate that we have in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, that says, let us, 24 and 25 says, let us consider one another in order to stir up one another for love and good works and to not forsake the assembling together of ourselves. I can't tell you how many times over the 30 years or more that I've been in Christian ministry as either an assistant pastor or a senior pastor that you meet men and women who say they are Christians but have a kind of quasi view of, of what it means to go to church. Oh, I'll go when I, you know, when I got these other chores done or I'll go at some point, you know, and we, sporadically, not that that means anybody here is like that. But there's a biblical mandate to gather. I mean, holy writ. And either this book in which you hold in your hands and you can read is the final authority for faith and practice in the life of the Christian, or you might as well just throw it on the shelf and live your life the way you think you want. Is it the final authority? You bet it is. And I, I don't have, I don't have, I will tell you what I don't have. I don't have the right to pick, cherry pick through here the things I want to do and don't want to do. So we are to be submissive to the laws of the land. 
He goes on in verse 14, or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praises of those who do good. Uh, there's the higher authority and the lower authority in P Peter's day. And there is that same structure in our society today. And simply because, um, well, this is a clear highway. There's nobody on it. I can do 80 because I want to do 80 miles an hour. That's not being submissive to that sign that says 70 miles per hour. As Christians, we are to be some of the best citizens in our society. That's the fifth item of 10. The sixth item of 10 I draw your attention to verses 16 through 18. Uh, there in verse 16, well, let's read from verse, uh, verse 14 on. It says, Or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good, Verse 15 says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. We'll come back to that one in a minute. Verse 16, As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as a bondservant of God. So a sixth thing that we are to do, because we're God's special people, called out of darkness and have obtained mercy, is to not use the liberty we have as kind of a, a reason to have vices in our life. Let me explain that a little bit further. Is, yes, you and I are free in Christ to make choices about what we do, what we don't do, what we're involved in and what we're not involved in. But if something is a vice in our life, in other words, it's more controlling us than, than we're in control of it. And someone were to, someone in the body of Christ were to notice that there's, there's uh, some red flags going on about this or that that you're involved in, the, the individual's response that is being exhorted should not respond with, hey, I'm free to do what I want to do. Don't use liberty as a cloak for vice. The seventh thing that we're to do is to honor all people. Verse 17, notice that it says, honor all people. Fear, love the brotherhood. Honor the king. Honor all people. I love this uh, the Webster's Dictionary 1800 version says that um, if the word there, honor all people, was a noun, it would be to esteem due or paid worth. Okay? If it was a noun, the text is telling the Christian reader to esteem due or paid worth to all people. Uh, the same word is found in Matthew 13, 57, when Jesus said that a prophet is not without honor except 
in his own country and his own home. And sometimes that's been a beautiful uh, challenge for me, uh, being a husband and a father and a grandfather, that as a pastor, I, I desire greatly that my, my adult children, or not children, they're adults, that those in my family would be able to hear uh, the Lord spoken through me. But sometimes... Family needs to go somewhere else to hear the Lord because a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own home. I'm very privileged in that many, if not all, in my family are willing to receive from me godly perspectives and godly wisdom. But the word is not a noun, it's a verb. And so I bring your attention again to it In verse 17, honor all people, the verb means to treat with due civility and respect in the ordinary intercourse of life. We are to treat with due civility and respect everyone. So out the window goes a biased or a prejudiced. Why? Because we're his own special people. And we'll get to why in a moment. Called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're to fear God, honor the king, number eight. Number nine, servants, in verse 18, be submissive to your own masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. So there's that, you know, crux of the matter in the living room of our life when we are engaged in employment or some area that there's someone over us and we don't like their attitude or we don't like the the way they uh, handle us or we don't really agree with maybe their, uh, their vocabulary or something like that. We're still supposed to exercise submission with all fear, not only to the gentle, but also to the harsh. The last of these 10 items, and I want to get to several today, uh, several of the questions being answered, is found uh, down in verse 21b. So if I could draw your attention all the way down to verse 21. It says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. That you and I should follow his steps. The last thing I believe the text gives to us in terms of what we're to do because we're God's special people, his special people, his own, is to follow in the steps of Christ. What does that mean? Well, we could spend weeks on that. But my exhortation to us this morning is that get your Bible out, read the Gospel of John, and ask God each time you sit down to read, Lord, open my my spiritual eyes and soften my heart 
that I might see the person and the work of Jesus in this gospel and start reading. And you know what will happen? God will speak to you and show you Christ. Remember what Jesus said to Philip? He said, How long have I been with you so long that you don't know me? Spending time with the Lord is spending time in who he is. And we have a clear picture of who he is in John's gospel as well as other places. But that can give us a roadmap in how to follow his steps. Who are we? We're his own special people. What has happened to make us special? Called out of darkness into his marvelous light and obtaining mercy. What are we to do because of who we are? We have that list there. Proclaim his praises, abstain from fleshly lust, have our conduct honorable, submit ourselves to the ordinances of men, don't use liberty as a cloak for vice, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king, be submissive to our masters, and follow the steps of Jesus. Now that's a big list, right? That's like... Oh, man, how am I going to do three or five of those? Answer, you can't. How are you going to do one of them? Answer, you can't. I can't. In our outline study is a couple of verses that I believe really speak to uh, the the individual's heart who desires to, to like be able to check off some of these things that he or she is to do as God's special people. And those key verses are 1 John 4.17 says this. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is so are we in this world. Two key verses. They come to us in the Gospel of John and in Philippians. Jesus was speaking. And remember what he said in, in John chapter 15. He said, abide in me. Like stay close to me. Hang out with me. Allow me to be right next to you every step of every day that you go. He said, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Now here's the, here's the emphasis. For without me, you can do nothing. And we look at that list of what we're to do, and Jesus is saying very loudly, without me in your life, you can't do any of that. Without me taking up residence upon the throne of your heart, and oh, the, how the heart can be divided. We can want career. We can want relationship. We can want uh, entertainment. We can want, we can want, we can want. We live in a, a Western society that is used to getting what it wants. Have it your way, right? 
But when Christ is on the throne of the heart, that's what Jesus was saying. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul goes on now in what I believe is perfect emphasis, perfect symmetry. The two emphasized verses walk together hand in hand. He was writing to the Philippians in chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, and he said, Not that I speak in regard to need, I'll read it for us, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to abase and how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Philippians 4.13 I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you hear that? Apart from him we can do nothing. With him I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And I believe that is the crux of the way we come at that question, what are we to do as God's special people? There's another question that the passage that emerges from the passage that I'd like to speak to this morning. It's on the second half of your outline. And it's the fourth of six questions. And the question is simply this. Why? Why are we to do any of these things that clearly <laughs> clearly have been listed there by the Apostle Peter and clearly are there by the person of the Holy Spirit? Why? Then, then why am I to do these? And I believe the Lord has given the why of it in the passage itself in several places. Going back to verse 12, we read it. Notice in the latter portion of verse 12, it says that when they speak evil against you, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe. Glorify God in the day of visitation. One of the first reasons that we're to seek to walk in obedience to the mandates that we have in Scripture is so that when others observe our lives, that when judgment day comes, they will glorify God. There, there'll be a, a remembrance of man. That individual I knew, that person that was at my workplace, that, that mom or that dad or that student or that young person, they, they were really serious and genuine about knowing Jesus. That they'll observe your life and glorify God. A second reason why we would do this comes to us in verse 15. I read it and said we'll come back to it. We're back at it right now. Verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. 
It's God's will, simply. If you, ever, <laughs> if you had a nickel for every time a Christian said, oh, I'd just like to know what God's will for my life is, you'd have quite a few nickels. And maybe you're asking that this morning. Maybe you came through those doors like, man, I, you know, I'm here at church, I'm going to listen to the message, but, but in the back of my mind is I really want to know what God's will is. Well, there are several places where the scripture says specifically what God's will for your life is. And this is one of them. Verse 15, it is God's will that we seek and endeavor to live the life of what we're to do as God's special people. Another answer to the question why we would do this, not only so that others will glorify God when they observe our life, not only because it's, it's the uh, distinct will of God, but also because it's commendable before God. Look at verse uh, 19. Verse 19 says, For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. It's commendable before God. And doesn't, doesn't it make sense that you and I as professing Christians, you and I as believers, would want God to commend us for the way in which our Christianity is being lived out? It's such a sobering passage and text. It deals with really the deep things of what it means to say, yes, I'm a Christian. You know, here in the U.S., uh, I think there was a period of time where just about every American citizen would say they were a Christian because they're in America. Well, things have changed. If you've been walking around with your eyes open for any length of time, Things have changed. And now there is a, a, a multiplicity of diverse um, belief systems and whatnot. And so for someone to say, I am a Christian, we're talking about what that looks like in my life daily. It's commendable before God and Finally, in verse 21, bring you to verse 21, says, For to this you were called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. There's a calling upon uh, his own special people, called out of darkness into his marvelous light to live in such a way that we see those things detailed in uh, the list of ten. And why were to do this? Because God calls us to it. All right. Well, we're going to wind this up this morning with um, the fifth 
of six questions, and we'll deal with the last question next time we're together. The fifth question that the passage seeks to answer is, when are we to do these things? When? Uh, is there a, you know, a start point, an end point, that as his own special people, knowing what I'm to do, knowing what's happened to me, and why I do these things. I mean, this just makes sense to me. I hope it makes sense to you, and I'm not just rattling. But then when? When are we to do these things? I'll draw our attention uh, in closing this morning to verse 24. Verse 24, which says, uh, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, okay, you could write your name there if you're a Christian this morning. And if you're not, before you leave here, you want to give your life to Christ, please grab somebody that is and let them pray with you. Come forward, we'll want to pray with you. But if you're a Christian this morning, that we is you and me, whom himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. When are we to do these things that we're given to do because we understand why we do them and what's happened to us and who we are our whole life? Not just a Sunday churchgoer, not just a Sunday Wednesday churchgoer. Not just a sporadic churchgoer or even, you know, a we're to do this our whole life. Because you and I, as, as born-again Christians, a price was paid. The most highest price that could. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus willingly gave his life that you and I might know eternal life and it more abundantly down here. What greater thing than, than to just say, there is no greater love than a man lay down his life for his friend. So in response to his love for us, to lay our lives down for him. There's great sacrifice there and how it's worked out on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, our lifetime basis takes, a, takes on a variety of things. But if he's speaking to you this morning, speaking to you who are watching at home about wanting, he wants more of you. He wants you to give him his entire, your entire life. That's the purpose of why we're here this hour. That's what we're looking at in the text. That's what the Spirit of God would say to each one of us and to the church. Are you willing to do that? Because if you are, you can do it right where you are. God's listening. God sees your heart. He sees mine. And he knows the state of our hearts, the condition that they're in, where he is concerned. I invite you to pray with me as we close this morning. Worship team, will you come?
pray, church. Lord, such a, such a sobering word, but a beautiful and powerful word. We are entering a time in which the dividing line is becoming clearer and clearer. And we know that one day you're coming for your bride, the church. And that the only way we are called up is because of our belief and faith in what you did at Calvary. The acceptance of your blood being full payment for our sin. And to know that, Lord, to know that we are saved and justified, that by your grace, each and every day, we desire to live for you wholly. We come this morning simply humbly, knowing we need your grace. We need your strength. Lord, you know every heart here this morning. You know every life. We simply ask you to have your way. Fill us with your love. Fill us with your strength, O God. As we come to the cross, that there you did it all. We come again. Have your way, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.